going on, anesthesia nerds? I have got an exciting episode for you today. If you have ever been to an IVEX lecture before, you have probably heard our next guest speak. She is phenomenal, fantastic, all of the other adjectives to describe uh, what a talented and super smart uh, woman she is in veterinary medicine. And I am talking about none other than Kelly Foltz. She is a 1999 graduate of Mercer University. She is a 2006 graduate of Athens Technical College where she got her um, degree in veterinary technology. Not only that, but she's gone above and beyond and she has been a member of the Veterinary Emergency and Critical Care Technician Specialty since 2012. She has worked at Auburn University. She has worked at University of Florida. She is an amazing educator and especially on the floor helping technicians and veterinary students hone their emergency and critical care and ICU nursing skills. And now she just joined Blue Pearl Veterinary Partners and she is the regional nursing partner for the whole mid-Atlantic region. So maybe you'll get to see her out and about there in some Blue Pearl hospitals. In addition to clinical work, Kelly is also a lecturer and author. She is on the AVMA committee. She is on the AVMA task force. She is very very passionate about technician utilization and technician specialization and all kinds of ECC and ICU topics and just elevating the standard of care for our ER patients that come through. So welcome to the show, Kelly. Hey, y'all. I'm so glad to be here with my friend Tasha, who I've known for quite some time. Uh, And I speculate to say that we are probably equally nerdy about our respective subjects in very similar ways. I'm really excited to have this conversation today. Oh, 100%. We're very, I think, you know, I think everybody listening by now knows what they're getting into here. Um, We're going to geek out and we're going to not be ashamed of how excited we are. I mean, listen, my last episode, I got really, really excited to talk about methacarbamol with someone. So this is where we're at, folks. (laughs) All right. What happens today? Oh, we're cool. That's fine. Um, All right, guys. So uh, I wanted to start off talking to Kelly um, or should talk to you, Kelly, about your new position. Um, So tell me about what you're doing, because for as long as I've known you, you have been a university level educator. And now you're kind of taking on this different role where you're a regional nursing partner. And I know that that kind of entails making sure that you're kind of responsible for really elevating that standard of care and making sure that some of those initiatives get pushed through as far as at least for the Blue Pearl practices. But can you tell us a little bit more about your role and what it means for veterinary technicians who might also be interested in doing something along the lines of what you're doing? Yeah, so this is a big leap for me. You are correct. Uh, For about a decade now, my primary identity has been as a clinical practitioner in academic veterinary emergency and critical care. And up until a few months ago, I don't think I ever would have seen myself leaving that role. It's a role that I found super rewarding and incredibly engaging. But more and more lately, uh, my mind and my interest has turned toward some of the challenges facing us at large in the profession, Uh, utilization, respect, microaggression, career satisfaction, engagement, parity uh, with the DBM community, collaboration with veterinarians. And so when this opportunity came my way, it was a big ask to leave the clinical environment, a huge ask. And as I said a little while ago, I would have just written it off. I don't think there's two things that could seemingly be farther apart than corporate medicine and academic medicine. We think of academic medicine, right? the ivory tower, it's pure, you know, um, everyone is learning and everything is at the highest standard of care. Uh, When we think of corporate, I think a lot of people in our industry have very strong feelings about corporate, even if they may not have any direct experience with it. So I had this opportunity and I said to myself, you know, this is a flavor that you really haven't tried. You've worked in ERs, you've worked in shareholder owned, you know, hospitals, you've worked in secondary referral practices, you've worked in academia, you know, which is primarily tertiary referral. So I really wanted a different kind of flex for myself. 
I don't want to say that clinical medicine had gotten old or that I wasn't engaged anymore, but I think there's a certain point um, in all of our lives as technicians and professionals where you kind of look around and you say, well, what else is there? You know, my, my skill set is this. I'm really engaged in continuing education. You know, I'm engaged with my peers. I'm engaged with my professional organizations. What else is there for me? So I decided to, to take this jump and it's a really, really cool position. Um, it was formerly known as the regional technician uh, trainer. And basically in, in response to feedback and to meet the needs of their technicians and assistants, Blue Pearl has revised the position and it's now the regional nursing partner. So pretty much everything technician related in the region is in some ways gonna come across my desk. Uh, Mid-Atlantic for them comprises Maryland, Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, Tennessee, and Augusta and Savannah, Georgia. And for me, that means about 18 or 19 hospitals that I will be visiting. So my role is primarily to support the technicians of the region and be that bridge between the technicians and assistants uh, in the clinical settings and the medicine side of things. So I report directly to the regional vice president of medicine and we work as partners. So I attend medical quality meetings. The company has a pretty robust medical quality culture. Uh, everything is pretty much centered around development and growth mindset. So paying attention to medical quality, visiting the hospitals in my region, getting to know everyone, trying to figure out what they need to function at the highest end of their license, something that I'm super passionate about. It's very important to me. So helping propose initiatives and follow through on initiatives. Uh, the company also has a, a pretty robust in-company leveling process where technicians and assistants can get skills signed off and study and take an exam once or twice a year to get basically a job family promotion in addition to merit-based promotions. So uh, a lot of that comes to me, like a lot of it is on the local hospital level, but ultimately I will be the one signing off on, you know, whether people can level or not. We're involved in reviewing the exams for all the different levels, basically rating them, validating questions, rewriting questions. So there are five regional nursing partners total, and that's an amazing group of women. We work pretty closely with the director of nursing nationwide within Blue Pearl. And then there's also a lot of kind of reaching across the banners of the company and Mars Veterinary Health to, you know, Banfield and VCA. So there are some initiatives in common. Things like reviewing patient safety reports, mentoring people through the VTS, uh, reaching out to technician programs in the region, Weekly, I interact with what we call talent acquisition, which is basically recruiting. We have a regional social worker, so working with her oh, to wow. set up programs and things um, for the people of the region. So I look at it this way. It's a matter of scope, right? So I used to have, you know, a department and colleagues and vet students that I could fuss over and mother and teach and now it's just kind of a bigger scope and it's exciting it's exhilarating it's a little intimidating at times but i have already met some incredibly remarkable people like i just started this position in may so i'm about six or seven weeks in yeah i mean i think it's fantastic it's great to see someone of your caliber uh, get involved in corporate medicine not gonna lie corporate medicine a lot of times does get a bad rap you know just like overall in general, and even sometimes there are some corporates that get a bad rap for their medicine in general. Um, and we do sometimes think of corporate medicine, or at least I'll speak for myself, that sometimes we think of corporate medicine in uh, you know, a context of they're just worried about you know, making the numbers and get, hitting their target goals and, and that kind of thing, and not for the betterment of the profession and the pets, et cetera. Um, but I want to kind of hone in on something you said too, um, just specifically like just looking at technician utilization, right? And education, something that we talked about before we started recording that I think is kind of an interesting topic that just I would love your take on uh, is this idea 
that if you've been in veterinary medicine for a long enough time, uh, especially as a technician, there aren't a lot of avenues for growth and you pretty much have to go into management. Um, I think that you and I feel the same way is that not everybody wants to go into management, not everybody is good at management, um, not everybody is interested in doing that with their lives. So for technicians, what do you see for the future of kind of avenues for growth in their career outside of specifically management? I'm really glad you brought this up. I call it the last man or the last woman standing, right? If you're skilled enough um, as a technician and you've been in the practice long enough, sooner or later someone turns around and says, well, don't you want to be the, the technician supervisor or the practice manager or whatever? I certainly, when I became a supervisor, was very overwhelmed with the idea that I was now in part responsible for the performance and the career satisfaction of a lot of people. I think we've proven again and again in BetMed that we don't do a very good job of mentoring and supporting and preparing people to transition from a clinical to a managerial role. 100%. Oh my gosh. Yes, I think that 100% uh, also yes. expect them to continue to work in a clinical role while doing the other things, right? So you're right. pulling your 13 hour shift, but then you also have to do payroll. And if you don't do it that night before you go home, you have to come in on another day, right? When you're potentially off or whatever. So it breaks my heart to see talented technicians who really have no interest in management and probably also don't have interest in specialization be told, well, we really don't have anything else for you, right? You're going to max out at however many dollars an hour. Uh, your, your role, what you're doing in the practice is not going to expand. You're maxed out kind of intellectually and financially. And I think if we dug deeper, we would probably find that that is part of the attrition and retention crisis, right? Why? Yeah, I agree why with people, you. Like maybe they're not even engaged in human radiology technology, but they're leaving vet med to go do that because they can support their family and punch a clock and, you know, have a reasonably unobnoxious job. Um, that will support them and enable them to save for retirement and take a vacation every once in a while. They'll never lose their love for vet med, but we've lost them, right? Yeah. So I, I think that the answer to that on a certain level is enabling people to work at, at the high end of their license, right? So within a given practice, how can we leverage that person, for example, in their interests? Maybe someone is super into behavior, you know, do, do we have that person doing puppy classes? Do we have that person pursuing, even if it's not a specialty, you know, can that person pursue some, some deep CE and serve a function for us in the practice that engages them? You know, can they provide some in-hospital CE on interpreting behavior in the hospital? Um, can they be doing some consultations with clients? for someone that's interested in blood banking or PT or, you know, nutrition. I think those are ones that come to mind really rapidly, but, you know, maybe you have someone in your practice that is just an incredible like ER technician. How can you leverage that person? Like, are you asking her how workflow can be improved? Are there projects that she can take ownership of within the practice that, that leverage her knowledge and her experience? of how your ER works, you know, glamorous or unglamorous. And, and that all fits back into the collaboration piece, right? I think so often as technicians, we're, we're seen and not heard, right? We get our pizza party for tech week, but <laughs> on a day-to-day -day basis, um, we're often acted upon rather than worked with. Yes, I, I think I, I totally agree with some of those statements. And I think I want to highlight what you said about if, somebody does move into management, you mean not even management, um, but first, if they do move into management, we need to give them the training and the tools to excel at management, right? I would never like just be thrown into, I don't know, give me a career, like, right? I would never just be like thrown into working at the car rental place that's like near my house, right? They would be like, here, you're going to go through a training period. We're going to give you these resources. This is how we do this, this, this. 
But I think that to your point, a lot of times, if you've been there long enough as a technician, it just comes a time they're like, okay, well, we'll just make you the supervisor now. No additional training on leadership, no management training, no interpersonal communication training. So I think that you know, practice managers, if you're listening to this, if you're going to move someone into a position of management or leadership, you need to support them in that and give them the training and tools to be effective managers and leaders. I mean, send them to the AVMA conference, right? The leadership conference, or or there's a number of other things that you can do. Alternatively, like like Kelly is saying, if a technician comes to you and says, you know what, I am really interested in anesthesia, but maybe they're not ready to go full on and get their VTS. I mean, send them to the anesthesia nerds conference just so they can get extra information, you know, or if they are into exotics, they could go to exotics con, but just foster that level of education. And so I think personally that technicians who are utilized, who do feel like their voice is heard, who are asked their opinions about stuff and who are uh, made to be a collaborative part, they're going to stay in your practice longer. I think you have to ask yourself, what am I doing in my practice to give my technicians a chance to say yes? You know what I mean? To say, yes, this is the place for me. Yes, this is the career for me. Yeah, I think sometimes we really aren't doing that. We say, well, you're lucky to have a job, right? COVID, you know, it's hard work. We expect the work to be hard. If you want to do this, you're going to put up with all of it. And that's not enough anymore. It's not. You're right. That's why we're losing people to other career fields. When we see signs on the door that the grocery store is hiring at $18 an hour, why would someone stay, you know, where they aren't being utilized, they aren't being, their brain isn't being simulated, and they're potentially getting bit, scratched, urinated on. Why not go work at Whole Foods? (laughs) Yeah, my favorite, personally, because I'm a Southerner, is, you know, Waffle House. You can Mm, get smothered and covered at Waffle House for more than a lot of, you know, ABMA program graduate credential technicians are making. And Veterinary medicine has taken a gamble. They have leveraged technicians' love for the animals and the work against the working conditions. And that chicken head has come home to roost. Yeah, that's a good, I never thought about it that way, but you are right there. Yeah, and I do think that now, I think COVID brought a lot of it out. You know what I mean? I I think that it it just changed the way we thought about work in general and, and just about quality of life in general. And I think that, or I hope that veterinary medicine is changing for the better. And certainly if they're putting someone like you in a position of power and a position to change things, we know that it's going to eventually get better because we have people like you in leadership positions and that's what we need to see. I don't want to take up all of our time talking about this stuff, even though I think it's important and it is fascinating, you know, what we're doing as far as technicians and career longevity and career resilience and all that. However, since this is the Veterinary Anesthesia Nerds podcast and uh, you also are a VTS ECC, I want to take advantage of some of your brilliant ECC knowledge that you have in there. And I want to do a case together if that's cool. That's way better than what I thought you were going to say. I thought you were going to test me on like oh, drug receptor sites or uh... no, no, <laughs> God, no, no. I uh, maybe Stephen and myself are the only people that get really jazzed about you know talking about what drugs you know work on kappa receptors or some shit like that. <laughs> and it that's why we love our anesthesia nerds. <laughs> so often in the ER, right? It's fast, cheap, and out of control. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I don't function that way. I'm an anesthesia nerd. So I need my checklist. I need to go in an orderly fashion. (laughs) Oh, see, in the ER, we're just moving from disaster to disaster. Yeah. And that's, listen, this is why I need you to do that. I don't want to do that. And I, I'll stay in my OR with all my beeps and boops and writing down on my charts and it'll be great. I can just do my math in peace. What you got for me? All right. So our case today is cat named Bubbles. So Bubbles comes into the ER because she has had a little mishap in her life. For the past 10 years, she has been living quietly in the house. Um, She maybe sometimes goes out on the covered screen porch catio, but she is not an outdoor cat by any means. 
Um, she's lived in the house her whole life. She is a gorgeous, like orange tabby cat, super sweet. Um, but grandma came to visit the family and you know, grandma moves a little slow. So she left the door open and bubbles took that opportunity and went out to see the world. Unfortunately, the world included the neighbor's backyard and the neighbor's dog who was not a fan of bubbles. So bubbles kind of got beat up by the neighbor's dog. I don't want to say kind of, she did get beat up by the neighbor's dog. So uh, grandma and the whole family have now rushed Bubbles in to you. And as an ER technician, you see a patient like Bubbles come in. Maybe she has some lacerations. She has some blood, uh, you know, on her fur. We're not sure entirely what's going on with her yet. Walk us through what you are going to do as far as setup, what are some things you're thinking about? What are some next steps that we should know for this patient? Okay, Bubbles is in trouble. She had an adventure, <laughs> not the fun kind. So I'm probably gonna start my assessment of Bubbles uh, in the lobby or in the vehicle, wherever I meet them for triage. One of the first things I'm gonna look at in any traumatized cat is their level of consciousness and their respiratory rate and effort. So I wanna see if she's panting. I wanna see if there's any evidence of cyanosis. Cats are really small, dogs are really large. Uh, we know that cats don't do shock in quite the same way as dogs. So if she's panting, I'm gonna take her straight back and put her in oxygen. Some people might assume that she's panting because of the car ride and she doesn't like the car. I wanna rule that out, but I also, want to make the best choices for bubbles. And so I think being in oxygen to see if she settles out is probably a good choice that I can make. Probably pop her in if I have a cage at around 40%. If I don't have an oxygen cage, I can certainly try some mask O2 if she seems like she's having difficulty. A lot of cats don't like the mask. We know that cats in respiratory distress are incredibly fragile. So we can certainly take the mask off the tubing and see if she tolerates it a little bit better that way. If she seems alert, uh, that's great. If she seems a little dull, that can certainly be a pain response in this species. I think a lot of people are like, oh, the cat is subdued because it's been in the car and it's had a rough day. Yes, that's true. But physiologically, they're not gonna do shock like dogs do. So the next things I'm gonna evaluate, because I can evaluate those two things kind of while I'm carrying her back to the treatment area. Uh, the next few things I'm gonna do are absolutely get a heart rate and get uh, rectal temperature and get a Doppler blood pressure. There's a whole lot of studies and information about non-invasive blood pressure in cats. Uh, there's some excellent newer stuff out there. Thinking right now, I think it's um, Dr. Drobatz and some of his uh, folks did a study on sick cats in the ER and Doppler blood pressure, radial versus coxygeal. And they found that coxygeal tended to trend high. And their recommendation was that the two sites not be interchanged. Hmm. That potentially both be assessed for trends uh, in concert with one another, but that the method of assessment should be selected. <laughs> and this is really subjective, where the <laughs> measurement most closely approximated the clinical presentation of the patient and their perfusion parameters, which is a little bit of heavy lifting, I, th I think on our part, but it's a, the take home for that one for me was that you, you cannot interchange, right? Like, so don't do a radial this time and then do a coxygeal next time. Right. Because the coxygeal in, in that study and in a couple of others was trending higher than the radial. So I'm going to get a blood pressure and I will say, I'm going to get a blood pressure at the site that, is easiest for me and for bubbles. So, you know, if she has a degloved tail, obviously we're not going to use the tail. Uh, if she has visible limb injuries, misangulation, something looks fractured, not gonna use that one. Uh, I'm a big tail person just because most cats tolerate it really well. So I'm gonna get that blood pressure and the reason I want to know uh, those things along with the heart rate that I can steal from the Doppler while I'm getting the blood pressure is, that shock in the cat frequently presents right as hypothermia, hypotension, and bradycardia. And a lot of that is going to determine 
the next steps for the clinician. We know, or we often say, that the gut is the shock organ in the dog and the lungs are the shock organ in the cat. And this has to do, you know, with the tissue type and cytokines and pro-inflammatory mediators. But um, basically, right, if, if her temp is like 96 and her heart rate is 140 to 150, I am definitely going to alert my clinician that I feel like the cat is in shock. And we may not start fluid therapy as rapidly and aggressively as we potentially would if she wasn't showing signs of shock. Now, let's say you've got those parameters and your clinician wants to take radiograph, right? Um, but Bubbles, again, she's scared. She's had a traumatic event. She's maybe not going to tolerate uh, getting a radiograph without some analgesia sedation. What in the ER is your usual go-to analgesic, sedative, et cetera, for these patients? So I think we have to be careful. Uh, I always keep two things in mind with, with cats in the ER. One is that there's a lot of occult heart disease in feline patients. And we say it's a cult, not because it has anything to do with Satan or Ozzy Osbourne, but because <laughs> it's not detectable to us clinically, right? We can't hear a murmur, et cetera, et cetera. So I need something that is going to be respectful of the cat's cardiovascular system. Uh, I want something that's going to provide a good amount of pain control because I don't know the extent of this cat's trauma. Like she may have some blood on her fur, she may have some obvious lacerations, but obviously I need the radiographs to determine the extent of any orthopedic injuries, of any uh, pulmonary contusions, for example, rib fractures, all things that hurt sometimes that hurt in different ways. And then the other thing I try to be mindful of with cats in the ER is that there's some indication that as much as 40% of cats over 10 years of age have kidney disease. So I would really want to avoid an NSAID potentially forever in this cat. Like I'm not the <laughs> one describing it, but you know, part of my job as a technician is to remind the doctor we're working together. So if I'm working with a like an intern or or a newer doctor or maybe an older one that just is not in touch with things, you know, that is ordering like Meloxicam or Onsior for this cat. I'm going to respectfully say, you know, we probably need to check a few more blood pressures. We probably need to get our, our panel back to see if we have any elevation in kidney values before we give that type of drug. So for something transient, like a radiograph, it would probably be nice to have something reversible. So maybe a little pure mu action, depending on what I have in the practice, uh, maybe a little something, something for just kind of sedation and general muscle relaxation. We don't necessarily, I don't know that the morphine mania, you know, the pure view mania in cats is, is really as bad as it's cracked up to be. I think sometimes more often than not, that's dose dependent, but so yeah, yeah little, I agree with you there. I think a little something to smooth her out. I don't want her to hurt. So, yeah, a lot of it would depend on what I have, right? I'm used to being at universities where they literally have all the things, including like Remy fentanyl. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I, you know, off the pure mu list, you know, fentanyl would be nice, like maybe one hit of fentanyl because we know it has a short half-life. Uh, maybe a little something like some midazolam to go together. What are your thoughts, anesthesia nerd? <laughs> I mean, you know, I love my opioids. My go-to is usually methadone in cats, but I also love fentanyl if people have fentanyl. Um, and if people have, you know, sometimes I'll go into clinics and they just, they don't even carry any pure muse. They don't have any schedule twos. So I say, you know, if buprenorphine is your heaviest hitter, then go ahead with buprenorphine. Again, if we're talking about a cat, we just have to remember that dosing wise, um, and I can put a link to this study in the show notes, um, there is some evidence that if we want analgesia in cats, we're going to have to have our buprenorphine dose be at 0 0.02 or higher mg per kg. So this 0.01 mg per kg uh, buprenorphine 
isn't really cutting it analgesia wise for cats. So depending on what you have, I, I agree with Kelly. Pure mu is usually my way to go. Uh, nice analgesia. It is reversible, et cetera. And then if I'm in a clinic that has it and I need something more than the pure mu, I, my next step is usually an alfaxalone because I like the versatility of alfaxalone being able to go IV or IM. That is a great point. I left it off my list, but I'm glad you brought it up because, yeah, if if for any reason we're having difficulty handling her or establishing vascular access, we could go ahead and get our films, especially if we're concerned about uh, her lungs and her pulmonary function. Alfaxalone would let us do that. Yeah, I think that mainly what Kelly and I are both in agreement of is that you don't want to take these cats and manhandle them and, you know, scruff them, stretch them, or, or get them even more stressed out in this particular instance. We want to avoid uh, the situation escalating. We want to avoid that fear and stress. Yeah, and I'm going to tag on and say I want to avoid that situation every time. I am the crazy cat lady. Uh, people who may have worked with me who are listening to this are smiling and nodding, but I also think cats in the ER, right? We don't know the extent of her trauma and you can absolutely 100% kill this cat. Uh, if you rough her up or squash her onto the tabletop or lose her in the ceiling. So. Oh my gosh, yes. That has happened twice in my career. <laughs> oh my God, I will never forget. Noel, we couldn't find Noel for like, Three days. We knew she was in the ceiling. We just had to wait for her to come out. Oh my God. Yes. I've definitely lost, like, been been called to assist once the cat is already under the cage bank, for example, or uh, squashed in something. So. Uh, I remember those days. Yep. I mean, I'm the same with you now. I won't, if, if it starts going that way, I just walk away and I just tell my clinician like, nope, we need drugs. Yeah. And I don't just want like some drugs. I don't want the weenie dose of Torb. Right. I need a drug and a dose that will get me the sedation that I need. Real drugs. All right. Well, let's say with bubbles, let's say you do some radiographs and luckily she doesn't have any, you know, where nothing is in her thoracic cavity. She's not, she doesn't have uh, pulmonary contusions. She really made it out with just some lacerations, right? So let's say we're, Team anesthesia, we're going to take her and we're going to give her, you know, we're going to induce her. We're going to give her some local blocks, sew up these kind of lacerations she might have in her hind end or degloving injury on her tail, et cetera, take that. But then she she is going to be hospitalized. Um, and what I kind of want to talk to you about is if she's going to be hospitalized, let's say for the next 24 to 48 hours and we're going to be watching her. What are some things that we can do to minimize these cats that are hospitalized in the ICU? And what, how can we minimize their stress, their anxiety? And I, I kind of want to talk to you about one thing that I think is interesting, and only because I don't really work in the ICU, but I was reading something about quiet hours or, or where we kind of turn the lights down. Um, we can talk about whatever you want, but I want you to tell me kind of like, what does that mean? And does that have a bearing on our patients' uh, well-being when they're in the ICU? I am so excited to be having this conversation with you. And I hope you're sitting down because I, I am. these are the things I love the most. <laughs> so first of all, I think you have to make the commitment that this cat will always be treated with kindness and respect. For whatever reason in veterinary medicine, if a dog is fearful or painful, we have tons of empathy, sympathy, and patience for that. But if a cat is in the same situation, for whatever reason, I feel like things become adversarial and the understanding is less from the get. And I'm not sure why that is. So uh, for Bubbles, what I would want for her would be a cage of sufficient size, even though she may not be moving around very much. Uh, it needs to be big enough to hold like a litter box and she has to have a hiding box. This does not have to be fancy. It can be a cardboard box. It can be like a storage container. If you don't have any boxes, you can certainly cover part of the cage door with like a thick towel just so that she feels like she is not always in the sight of everybody and everything in the treatment area the entire time that she's there. If you have a separate cat ward, that's ideal, but a lot of us don't. So you just have to make the modifications that you're able to make with what you have available. So we want some soft bedding. 
Uh, if we're at all concerned with orthopedic injuries, I, I know you said we might have a partially degloved tail here with bubbles, but for example, if you were to have a limb fracture or pelvic fractures, I would want a litter pan that, you know, is really low sided or even just like mm -hmm. a kennel pad with a couple handfuls of litter on it. We know that cats are clean. We know that they have very specific toileting behaviors. I think it is very stressful for them when they can't void in a way that's appropriate for them. And they are clean animals. And, and I think it does, for whatever reason, affect their course of treatment and their self-esteem when they have to void on themselves. So once we have the cage set up, then we kind of have to move on to the handling. So I would wanna be particular about scheduling her treatments and try to consolidate them so that I'm handling her as much as I need to handle her to get everything done. And then she has rest periods in between the next handling. So for example, if I'm worried about her blood pressure and I have to check that more frequently, you know, we'll do that. But what we're trying to avoid is, okay, a, a TPR at eight and giving a drug at 10 and then doing something else at 11 and then doing something else at 12, right? Cause she's never gonna get with the program or the routine and she is gonna be on high alert and fairly anxious and anticipatory about what we're doing and when we're coming back in the cage. We know that cats regularly sleep about 16 hours a day. So she's not gonna get good quality sleep if we're doing something every couple of hours. Obviously it's different if we have like an eye injury or the animal is super critical, but uh, in a case like this where she's gonna be in the hospital for a couple days, uh, I think it's very possible and plausible for us to schedule her treatments in such a way that we do what we have to do and then she has a few hours alone to rest. When we're working with her, we want to be respectful and feeling friendly. So no scruffing, no dangling. You know, we want to support her when we're picking her up. Some people really feel like you need to remove them from the cage so that the cage is the safe space. I think a lot of the time, certainly in my career, I have done a lot of things in cages. Sometimes you just have to. Sometimes it's actually more detrimental to take them out if you have a busy treatment area. Lots of dogs and people coming and going, as is sometimes the case in the vet schools, you know, during morning treatments, for example. So we're going to consolidate. We're going to be respectful. We're going to uh, get her little facilities that, that work for her injuries and, and where she is. A uh, huge pet peeve of mine, we're going to put the food and water as far away from the litter box as we can put it. <laughs> yes. I don't eat my <laughs> lunch in a porta john I don't eat my lunch in the bathroom. I don't know why <laughs> we expect cats. You know, and, and we're such people, right? We're like, this is a square receptacle full of litter, and I wish to put these two round things abutting the square thing. Mm -hmm. You know, why the cat doesn't eat. Yep. So, you know, quiet hours, quiet hours to me are an extension of consolidation of treatments, right? So we had quiet hours at Auburn and we really enjoyed them. I think they were very effective, not just for the patients, but also for our staff and for my colleagues. So the way it works typically is if you're running a 24-7 unit, um, you might say that between 2 and 6 a.m. or between 4 and 8 a.m. are the quiet hours. You turn off the overheads, obviously maintaining enough light in the room to where there aren't going to be medical errors and you can see what you're doing. You try to consolidate your treatments so there are minimal to no treatments during that time period. If you are typically playing Pandora or Spotify, you turn that off and you basically make it as quiet as possible, as dim as possible, and handle the patients as little as possible during that time period. And this is based on some principles from human medicine. There's such a thing as ICU psychosis, and this happens in humans because the lights are on, they're being handled frequently in the ICU. As you alluded to, right, there's pumps beeping, there's people walking around, so this is a real thing. Uh, my father actually has had several strokes and he actually experienced ICU psychosis during one of his hospitalizations mm -hmm. because sleep cycles are disrupted. And he started hallucinating and um, thought that the singer Johnny Rivers was sitting in a chair next to his bed talking to him about golf. And my mom was freaking out and thought he'd had another stroke. But basically he had not really had consecutive good sleep 
because someone was coming in right and checking the sensation in his legs or checking his blood pressure or the pulse ox probe fell off his finger. You know what I mean? The lights are coming on, the lights are going off. People are coming in, people are coming out. So it, it is an offshoot of that principle. It's a super easy thing to do. And I think it does enhance the well-being of the technicians as well, because we exist to care for the animals, right? And if we feel like we can take these steps to make them more comfortable and enhance their outcomes, that in turn makes us feel better about what we're doing. And we know that we've been heard. And I think having the outlet for a technician of being able to take an action to improve care is very, very validating. I agree so much. <laughs> I think that, you know, um, I think it was one of our colleagues, you know, had put a, a survey about, you know, kind of in vet med, this kind of idea of moral injury in the decisions that we make and uh, how we feel our care towards our patients affects our job satisfaction. And I think that that's one of the things that plays into it. So totally love everything you're saying. Uh, another thing, kind of uh, a question I have is, is there an advantage for uh, cats especially to kind of get out of the hospital? Um, and that's not to say we want to rush them out the door, but at some point would, would they do better at home? I 100% agree. And this is very case by case dependent. I think the animal has to have stabilized in whatever ways it was unstable. So for example, if they're having persistent GI signs, you know, we probably want like 10, 12, 14 hours without, you know, about of diarrhea, you know, are they responding to their antiemetics? Are they eating? And this is the big thing with cats, right? Cause some cats are not going to eat in the hospital no matter what. And so that I find is a real trigger point for sending a cat home. You know, if pain is controlled, wounds are closed, kidney values are normal, other values that were deranged are now normal, and the client is comfortable taking them home and understanding that they may need to bring them back for a feeding tube if they don't eat for the owner at home. I think it is absolutely reasonable to move a cat to its home environment rather than have it in our environment, which is in many ways suboptimal for feeling patients. Yeah, I agree. Um, there's sometimes I, some other, some cats that I'll go in, and again, I don't hang out in the ICU very often. It's usually me dropping off a post-surgical patient, rounding the ICU tech, and then kind of getting out of there. But sometimes I'll see some cats and I'm like, man, you're just so stressed while you're here. Uh, and I think maybe you'd do better off at home. Um, but speaking of kind of pain and stress, um, I know that you and I are both really big fans of the feline grimace scale that's out there. So how are you utilizing this in the ICU to kind of gauge where your feline patients are at? Full disclaimer, I love the feline grimace score. Uh, I'm obsessed with it. So I think it all starts with training on the floor in real time so that everyone working with cats is familiar with the scale and understands how to use it. It's not the only one out there. Um, there's also the Glasgow and then what is it? The UNESP Botucatu. Mm-hmm. Um, Botucatu. Botucatu uh, is another great scale. I like the Grimace score because it's just so cool. You know, they did all of that photo analysis, took all of those measurements. They have an app for it, which is incredible. It's a free app. You can put it on your phone. You can score in real time. It has practice scores that I think are lovely to help build your confidence with the scale. The only, I would say the only downfall to the feline grimace scale is that it is not validated in black cats. Um, I, I think the uniformity of color kind of messes up uh, the analysis and, and the measurements, but I think you can certainly apply principles of it as you become more educated about their posture and some of the changes uh, that happen when they're in pain. So yeah, make sure everybody is confident using it and then yeah, yeah. a way to track it. So, you know, a form 
I find those kinds of things work best when there's like a reminder of how you do it. You know, like don't just make a form that says feeling grimace score 8 a.m., 8 p.m., right? You, you need mm-hmm. to probably walk people through it. Uh, that needs to be recorded in their medical record, whether that's electronic or paper. And then I think you also have to have clinicians that are on board that understand the scale and that trust you to use it. I think there's nothing more disheartening for a technician than, you know, to score a patient on Botucatu or Colorado State or Glasgow and go to their clinician and say, you know, I think this cat is painful because X, Y, Z, like here's the postural scoring, here's the response palpation, here's the heart rate. And to be told, you know, I disagree or we're not really going to commit to any drug changes at this time. Yeah. I mean, I've definitely had that happen. It is, it is rough when you're trying to advocate for your patient, but you know, um, within the scope of our license, right. Gotta be, uh, cognizant of that. And again, kind of goes back to what you were saying about, you know, really working as a collaborative team for the health of the patient, not necessarily a hierarchical system of veterinarian on top and, and you know, technician uh, or nurses reporting to veterinarian, but really us together putting our information in, using our areas of expertise for the benefit of that patient. Well, and I think another important thing to note, because I don't want to create the impression that all technicians want to play doctor or that we doubt our clinician's judgment. No. It's super important for us to own this. And when you get deflected to say respectfully, can you explain to me why you don't want to make a change at this time? And you may learn something. You know, your clinician may say, like, here's how the drug acts. Here's what I'm concerned about with this cat. Like, this is why I don't want to do it. And that's okay, right? Like, yeah. I'm not- Every 100%. Time. Not right every time. I think a key tenet of being a successful technician is to preserve that humility, right? I'm not the doctor. And that's okay. Yeah. I, I actually have no desire to be the doctor. You know, for a minute, I was like, should I go to vet school? Do I need to be an anesthesiologist? And then I was like, ooh, no, I actually don't want to do any of those things that I'm thinking about. So I'm actually pretty happy being, uh, you know, anesthesia technician I assume you're pretty happy being ECC technician I love my critical care career like but just to go back to what I said the relationship between you and your doctor will deepen you have to give them those opportunities to connect with you and if you don't ask you know why they're not willing to give x drug or do xyz you won't know and you'll just probably assume the worst, <laughs> right? Right. It's human nature. Yeah. So yeah, to, to deepen that relationship and that collaboration, I think as technicians, is definitely something we can own because I think sometimes we just retreat to lick our wounds without, you know, pursuing pursuing that knowledge of why the decline was made. Oh yeah, I totally agree with you. Um, and then I think that to your point. And to the point of, again, being it being a collaborative nature, I think that it's nice to have that conversation. I think that sometimes we are afraid to say, well, can you respectfully tell me why you don't want it? We're afraid of conflict, right? You know, um, and it doesn't have to be conflict. It really can be a good learning opportunity for you um, and then to help patients in the future. I certainly know that when I was a baby VTS, I just got my VTS and I would come out guns blazing. I mean, thank God for, you know, anesthesiologists like Andrea Coniglia, like Bryce Dooley, shout out to them because they were like, okay, hey, wait, here's why we might want to think about it from a different angle. Um, And so I became a better technician because of those conversations. Well, and I think you already said the most important word and the word is learn. And I don't know a doctor alive that if you go to them and pick the right time, like not while they're doing a pericardiocentesis or <laughs> while they've just gotten off the phone from a client getting phone authorization for euthanasia. But I don't know a clinician alive that if you say, I want to learn, teach me, you know, it's the rare one that's going to be like, no. 
Oh, 100%. More space for learning here. (laughs) Yeah, I agree with you there. And I think that um, I heard it on a, I think it was like an Adam Grant quote uh, that one of his podcasts where he said something about how he didn't want to be a know-it-all. He wants to be a learn-it-all. And I was like, oh, I feel that so hard. Like I just want to learn as much as I possibly can uh, to create the best experience anesthetically for my patients. Um, and then to, you know, help the next generation learn. I want to teach as well. So I think that you and I are like in that way. And uh, again, I'll wrap it up here. Uh, but I want to say thank you, Kelly, for being a technician that's going to advocate for other technicians and advocate for collaborative learning, because it's so important as we go forward in this industry. Well, I am still so excited to have been here with you. I'm so grateful that you asked me. I had a wonderful time and it's great to see you. Yeah. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. If people are listening and they want to hear you speak, where are you going to be lecturing this year? Yeah. So the next thing is going to be IVEX. And IVEX is where? San Antonio this year, 2022? For Uh, for those who attended regularly, (laughs) they know that San Antonio uh, appears on the list pretty frequently. Uh, I'm giving a couple of lectures there and doing a team training um, wet lab on ventilator care and high flow nasal oxygen. And then I'm presenting six lectures at Southwestern Veterinary Symposium this year in Fort Worth. I'm also presenting a couple webinars for Vetcetera later in the year. Have one coming up, I want to say, in September and one in December. Awesome. Awesome. Well, if you guys are interested, we will put links to those conferences in our show notes. We also are going to put a link to the Feline Grimace Scale information so you guys can check that out and maybe download the app to have at your clinic. And as always, Kelly, thank you so much for being on the podcast. It was a pleasure and we always learn so much from you. Thanks, lady. We'll see you on the floor.